0: First episode of season three.
1: In my head, it feels like we're halfway through season three. And I I can't explain it. Like, you know, you wake up some days and it's, you know, it's Monday, but it feels like Wednesday.
0: Mm, I have a similar feeling. I am over here just continuing the podcast work. And I feel as if someone exteriorly like set, put a title on it, set a deadline or did something where I'm supposed to feel as if it's different. And I'm just like, ah, oh, we're, we're doing the podcast. <laughs> yeah.
1: Although it's been a minute since we've recorded.
0: It has been a minute. Who are you? How are you? What's going on?
1: (laughs) We only talk through these recordings. We have not communicated.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I just, I wonder if people realize how often in any given day you and I are communicating across a breadth of channels.
1: (laughs) Yes. Texts, group texts tiktoks instagram we we communicate a lot but now we are communicating with all of you so the communication is going to be official it's going to
0: be smart it's going to be engaging we're going to be better brighter people in this form of communication hi i'm rowan hall Hi,
1: I'm Tracy Harrison.
0: And this is Willing and Fable, the podcast that brings you original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so
1: fascinating. Each week, we research a topic from history or mythology, and then we write an original story to go along with that topic. So if you'd like to support the weekly research papers and creative writing assignments that we do for this podcast, a quick and free thing you can do is leave us a review or... Follow us on social media at Willing and Fable.
0: You can also support Willing and Fable by becoming a patron on Patreon.com slash Willing and Fable, just like Beck and Kurt L. have done. Thank you both so much for your support and welcome to the Willing and Fable family. We are so gosh darn happy to have you. (laughs) Yes, we are. Welcome to the Willing and Fable family, which is legally
1: distinct from a cult. Mm,
0: for, For those legal reasons and also tax purposes. (laughs)
1: another way you can support us is by sitting in your house curled up in your bed or on the comfiest chair that you have and reading a good book then once you've read the book you can write a book report about that book and send that book report unprompted to all of your friends do not explain do not take feedback but no matter what we're happy to have you here (laughs)
0: I need to circle back to the five-star review thing because Kaylee and Sage and I went to a cabin in Joshua Tree for an artist retreat where we basically just worked really hard in the same room. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> I did a lot of Willing and Fable work. And so I, at one point, got to look through all the five-star reviews. And when I tell you the ego boost that is reading what nice people say about you to your friends.
1: <laughs> Ooh, I wish I could have been there. They were texting me while they were on this retreat, which was delightful. It was very cute to see all of all of you guys having a, a good time together. But man, I wish I could be there and just have an excuse to read five-star reviews out loud. Although I have my mom and my sisters who always want me to do that, which is very precious.
0: Oh. Mm-hmm. It... I am always caught between turning into a blush like my entire existence is just blushing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and also that little spark of pride I go oh <laughs> thank you <laughs>
1: couldn't agree more i mean it's it's it is exactly 50 50 for me pretty much every time i read them
0: right thank you so much for perceiving me thank you for perceiving me and encouraging other people to perceive me also now in this moment i need to not be perceived for a second while i regroup
1: (laughs) oh my god i signed sealed delivered that is the only way to describe that feeling (laughs)
0: So thank you, extra thank you to everyone who's ever done a five-star review because I read them all in one sitting.
1: (laughs) As you do sometimes. All right,
0: it's episode one, Tracy.
1: (laughs) Yes, episode one of season three, but technically episode 70 of our podcast.
0: I don't even know what to say about that. Just let
1: that sink in. (laughs) (laughs) There are so many now. There are so many. Okay, for episode 70, we are talking about Sappho. Before I jump in, Rowan, when you hear the name Sappho, what do you think of?
0: Okay, well, I think about how long you've wanted to cover this topic on the (laughs) podcast. Okay, so Sappho, sapphic love, hanging out on the Isle of Lesbos, where, you know, in in media, all the lesbians just are, I guess. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's where they spawn from, actually. It's the spawn point. (laughs)
0: Every lesbian ever. Yeah. And I also think, I heard a story, I don't know, I just, every time I hear Sappho, I remember someone telling me that she said she had a husband who was, like, the Greek translation of, like, Mr. McDude,
1: McGuy from the island of guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's so funny because we're going to get into that. You're not... You're more <laughs> incorrect with who said it than you are with what the name is. Let's put it I that actually, way. Actually,
0: okay, actually, I do think it was like Mr. McPenis McGuy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll get there.
1: <sighs> yeah. Yup, 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 I'm so excited to cover this topic. To start, I wanted to read an English translation of one of her poems and figure that'll get us in the mood for Sappho and her poetry. Okay. <laughs> okay. Some say an army of horsemen some of foot soldiers, some of ships, is the fairest thing on the black earth, but I say it is what one loves. It is very easy to make this clear to everyone, for Helen, by far surpassing mortals in beauty, left the best of all husbands and sailed to Troy, mindful of neither her child nor her dear parents, but with one glimpse she was seduced by Aphrodite for easily bent and nimbly has reminded me now of Anactoria, who is not here. I would much prefer to see the lovely way she walks and the radiant glance of her face than the war chariots of the Lydians or their foot soldiers in arms.
0: That was a journey. I was sitting here (laughs) going, excuse me, Sappho, we all know that 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 wasn't Helen's fault. How dare you? And then there was a moment where she was seduced by Aphrodite, which is not inaccurate. Like, that was...
1: <sighs> yeah. Yeah. Her, so her... Oh, I'm so excited to talk about her. I am, like, equally interested in her as a person and her poetry and the, the impact it has had on the world and the difficulty that we have now in experiencing it the way that it was meant to be experienced.
0: I only understand sappho as basically a meme Mm -hmm. and i don't Mm -hmm. mean to trivialize her at all but you know we have turned her into a one word symbol yeah for women loving women i don't know that anyone in daily run-of-the-mill
1: conversation goes oh right the person huh intriguing (laughs) right oh the person who was an amazing poet and contributed a lot to poetry not not what i thought of not what i think of well now it is and we'll get into it (laughs) sappho was so famous in her own time that she was often referred to simply as the poetess and audiences would know immediately who was being referenced she was born in 630 bc on the island of lesbos and in ancient times, she was regarded as one of the greatest lyric poets, and she was given more than the nickname the poetess. She was also known as the tenth muse. Oh, that's so good! Is't that so good? She was really, really, really respected in her time. People loved her poetry. I would commit
0: a a a, a violent crime actually for for
1: that nickname. okay,
0: that's a lot of power.
1: I know, the poetess, or the 10th muse. Wow! Mm Mm-hmm. Surprisingly, we know pretty little of her life, and most of her poetry is lost. What we have now that's extant, meaning it survived, is mostly in fragmentary form, and only the Ode to Aphrodite, which I read a portion of earlier, is a complete poem. So we've got about three sources that tell us about the life of Sappho. The Suda, which is a 10th century CE encyclopedia from Byzantium, references by other ancient writers and her own poetry. That's it. That is how we get all of our information on the life of Sappho, one of the most famous poets of all time. I am still stuck on her being
0: famous in her own lifetime. Very famous. Very, 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 very well known.
1: Like a household name.
0: I, when I think of artists that were famous in their own lifetime, I usually think of men. Yeah.
1: It's, yes, I, it's very rare for it to have been a woman.
0: And I mean artist, capital A, like, paintbrush swoosh. I don't just mean artist, you know, the description Mm -hmm. of a job. I mean, like, oh, Van Gogh is an artist. And not a good example of someone who was famous in their own
1: lifetime. (laughs) Yeah, that's very true. He was much later After Sappho's death, legends claim her works were purposefully destroyed by the medieval church to suppress lesbian love poetry. And although there is evidence that Pope Gregory VII ordered her works burned in 1073 CE, long before that, many of her poems were lost simply because they weren't translated or copied. So... We've lost a lot of her work over time. And, and that's also because she wrote in a very specific dialect. Um, we will get into that in a bit. But let's talk about her family. The family of Sappho. This isn't going to take very long. We don't have a ton of information. But <laughs> traditionally, her mother's been thought to have been named Cleus. But that's the speculation based on the name of the person we think might be Sappho's daughter. The idea that Cleus is Sappho's daughter is also debated because the word used to refer to her in Sappho's work could either mean child or something akin to young lover. That is such a problem
0: in researching yeah. ancient
1: Greece. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it's not known what her relationship to this Cleus was. And if it, if it was her daughter, they're like, oh, well, she probably named it after her mother. So not a lot known there. According to the Souda, which is that 10th century Byzantine encyclopedia... Sappho was married to a man named Kirklius of Andros. <gasps> Get ready, Rowan, this is where we meet Mr. McMahon. <sighs> the book Sappho Schoolmistress, written by Holt Parker, suggests that the name appears to have been invented by a comic poet. The name Kirklius comes from the word Kirkos, a possible meaning of which is penis. Yes! And it is not otherwise attested as a name. While Andros, as well as being the name of a Greek island, is a form of the Greek word anir, which means man. Thus, the name may be a joke claiming that she was married to Penis Man. Yes. <laughs> it is so good. It's so good. So it wasn't something that she came up with. It was a later on a like comedic poet said that Sappho was married to Penis Man. And people just got that as a joke. And through time, we kind of we are like, oh, yeah, this man, Kirklius Andros, was her husband, but didn't, no, probably Mr. not. Mr. McDick McMahon. <laughs> Mr. McDick McMahon guy boy fella. <laughs> <laughs> what would the... I'm trying to think of what the English
0: equivalent would of that would be, like, if you were trying to memify. ah, yes, my husband. It would be, like, my husband, Dick. Richard, because Dick is the the nickname for Richard, so if you're really trying to be subtle...
1: Yeah, yeah, but dick is a name. Okay, okay, okay. So, sure. I would say dick I mean there's always like dick biggest.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't ready.
1: <laughs> oh, I always think of that Monty Python bit where he's just naming the stuff in front of the guards and they're desperately trying not to laugh. <sighs> biggest dickus, I think is what he's saying in that sketch. <laughs>
0: I hope that that's true i hope that this story is true
1: (laughs) it's in history at some point someone did make a name that at least the scholars later on could go yeah that probably means penis man (laughs) (laughs) all right sappho's father's name is unknown but there are about 10 different names for him in ancient texts that people have said that's probably her dad mr mcfather mcdaddy make a daddy man yeah the craziest thing to me is sappho's own name has various spellings she wrote and spoke in aeolian dialect and the name found in her extant poetry is spelled p-s-a-p-p-h-o so it adds a silent p in the beginning for sappho sappho
0: (laughs) all i can think of
1: is a really hipster person <laughs> oh my god <laughs> just be like yeah my name's tracy the p is silent listen i told you that show <laughs> hell of a boss that i love yes the main character starts out goes hi my name's blitz the o is silent there's just an o at the end of his name it's spelled blitzo that's what this makes me think of
0: i'm sorry i feel like i should already have a handle on this what period of
1: grecian history did did she live in she was born in 630 BC, and as we go forward, you'll see she had a lot of contemporaries who, whose names you would have heard of. So she was right in this big boom of culture in Greece.
0: Right. So you've pointed this out in past episodes, and I feel like I always need to remind myself a lot of times we think of ancient Greece as a version of Greece that came much later than when she was alive. Like, she was
1: in history to some ancient greeks very much so yes actually that is a great transition to my next point which was that she was famous enough in her own time to have statues raised in her honor and ceramics fashioned after her and later and i'm talking up to like 100 200 years after she died coins were minted with her name and image on them historian vicky lennon comments mytilene the capital of lesbos proudly issued sappho coins Some have been found that date to the 3rd century AD, 900 years after her death. Sappho, or rather, her fame, cornered the ancient equivalent of the t-shirt concession, too. Her portrait and name appear on vases, bronzes, and later, much Roman art. Interesting, she made the jump. Oh, yes.
0: And she made the jump still as Sappho. A lot of times the Romans were like, yes, same thing, different name.
1: Yeah, she was a historical figure instead of a god, so they kept her work.
0: Also, friends, neighbors, countrymen, pin Midaline as a really cool name for a girl. Yeah. Or anyone, I
1: guess. It's just a cool name. It is a cool name. So while no images of Sappho exist today, artists have used clues and written descriptions from other people to create sculptures and paintings of the poet. Here's as much as we have described about what Sappho looks like. You ready? Mm Mm-hmm. She's described as being small in stature and having dark hair. Tracy, describe the poetess, not yourself. (laughs) (laughs) I thought the same thing. (laughs) like ah dang it (laughs) i've
0: actually been researching a lot of the ancient greek beauty standards and babe like you are peak in a lot of communities
1: oh i've got that aquiline nose Mm -hmm. you
0: all you have to do is draw in
1: a connecting brow
0: and in a lot of ancient greek communities like you are the babe
1: with the power (laughs) i love i know i actually remember my latin teacher in high school pointing out calling me out in class be like tracy has the perfect roman nose and at the time i was like 15 and i was like don't perceive me (laughs) (laughs) don't look at me (laughs) okay so i have two pictures of sappho for you today painted by different people throughout history they're both fairly close together in terms of history but i really like these paintings of sappho so i want you to describe them for everyone
0: oh yes i love when we get the greeks painted in this style so the first one Honestly, if you've seen any depictions of Helen of Troy lately, when she has dark hair, she's got a Helen of Troy vibe. We have the classic Grecian pale skin, rouge cheeks, dark hair, done up in braids. She's wearing this diaphanous fabric. She's sitting on, looks like, carved marble bench outside. She's sitting also on furs, which, to my eyes, depicts wealth. And... I mean in this painting there's a little bit of no thought head empty going on <laughs> which it describes the taste of the painter more than the subject I think yeah yeah but I you know you see paintings of women in ancient Greece and oftentimes if you're me anyway you're just like I want to be where they are Mhm um but the next one is my favorite this is really dark. The Where the first one was all pastels and manicured trees, this one is, I think she's standing on a rock by the ocean, and the ocean looks like it's going to drown you. Mm-hmm. And she's wrapped in this dark fabric that is, of course, slightly see-through, but it, it's wrapped only around her waist and then on top of her head. She is mm-hmm. fully bare-chested. I think she might be holding a... Of a harp? Yeah, a lyre. But in this in this image where she's leaning up against the rock and kind of doing the Kubrick stare, she looks like she's gonna beat you over the head with the lyre. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I love this.
1: Yeah, so this the first painting you talked about was by John William Goodward and it's from 1904. And the one that you're talking about now is from 1877 by Charles Mangan. Uh, Both of these will be on our social media for you to take a look at. I love both of these. They're very, like you said, they're very different depictions of Sappho. The first one is very pretty. I just really like that kind of romantic style of painting. The second one depicts what a lot of people perceive to be the turmoil around Sappho. It's historically has been the legend that she died by suicide by jumping off of cliffs. That's unlikely to be true, really. There's a lot of myths surrounding that. There's a a whole story about her falling in love with a fairy man and being scorned and then jumping off the cliffs. Almost certainly didn't happen. Uh, Very much a myth and probably brought her out by playwrights centuries after her death.
0: I do like the, the fairy man element for her, at least for a brief time yeah sounds fun yeah if it, it
1: it it's 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 very romantic in that tumultuous way, so you get paintings like this where and there's the very famous painting of the death of Sappho where she's standing on the edge of the cliffs I'll, i once I pull it up, you'll recognize it. it's like the Sappho painting. could you imagine existing and having
0: the Tracy Harrison painting? It's the dream. <laughs> I, but okay, here's the thing. So on a lot of social media, I've been talking about it, but people before me have, you know, 2021 was the year of the main character. 2022 is the year of the villain because main characters have to suffer quite a lot. And villains have better fashion. And I really feel as if the two paintings that you presented to me, we have year of the main character and then year of the villain.
1: <laughs> that is so accurate to what they look like. It's insane. <laughs> Okay, now take a look at this painting. This is called The Death of Sappho. It was painted in 1881 by Miguel Carbonell Selva.
0: You know, it's funny. I am very familiar with that painting and didn't know it was supposed to be Sappho at all. Really? Yeah, I've seen that image all the time because did you know when you Google Selkie imagery, that that is a painting that comes up every
1: time? At least for me. Wow. No, it's depicting the death of Sappho.
0: And to me... She does not look like she is about to leap off a cliff. She looks like she is controlling the seas.
1: Yeah, it does, with her hand outstretched. So this is a painting of Sappho with dark hair in a kind of white Roman Grecian garb, arm outstretched towards the ocean with waves crashing on the shore below her, a lyre at her feet. It's a very powerful image. And it reflects the idea um, that she... So those are supposed to be the Leucadian cliffs. That is where it is said she went. It was probably a playwright named Menander who wrote this story. These cliffs were a famous lover's leap. And following a story in which Aphrodite flung herself into the sea while mourning the dead Adonis, it became very popular for people. Menander could have simply been making fun of romantic love by having a woman known for her lesbian love poetry die by suicide because she was spurned by a man. The most likely answer is that she lived to a relatively old age and probably just died of natural causes. Awesome. Yes, I like that for her so much more. Right, exactly. She is said to have had three brothers, Erigius, Lyricus, and Caraxus. Apologies for (laughs) pronunciation. According to Athenaeus, Sappho often praised her brother Laricus for pouring wine in the town hall of Mytilene, an office held by boys of the best families. This is indication that Sappho was born into an aristocratic family and it's consistent with the sometimes rarefied environments that her verses record. The names of two of the brothers, Caraxus and Laricus, are mentioned in the brothers poem, discovered in 2014. The final brother, Erigius is mentioned in three ancient sources, but nowhere in the extant works of Sappho.
0: So, not to force a very modern narrative on this historical moment, but there was never a doubt in my mind that she came from wealth or married into wealth, because... People, especially women living in that period of ancient Grecian history, were not sitting around writing poetry if they were concerned about
1: where their next meal was coming from. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And to be educated enough to do it.
0: Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah.
1: It's believed that she and her family were exiled from Lesbos to Syracuse, Sicily around 600 BC, about 30 or so years after she was born. The Parian Chronicles record Sappho going into exile sometime between 604 and 591 BC. This may have been a result of her family's involvement with the conflicts between political elites on Lesbos. The reason they think that is it's the same reason for the exile of Sappho's peer around the same time, another poet who was there. Years and years and years later, the exile family was allowed to return, and now the Isle of Lesbos, from then on... Made coins and celebrated Sappho with the equivalent of, like, here's a t shirt. We're the, we're, the, we're the Sappho Island. So <laughs> it's a good thing they welcomed her back because they really
0: had yeah. their heels
1: in on. Secure the her bag. Success. Yes. <laughs> That's really all we know about Sappho's life. So now I'm going to transition us to talk about her work, which I. Mm. Rowan, I'm going to get so jazzed about, I got so obsessed with her poetry and the idea of what she writes and how she writes it while researching this. Did you know she invented the genre of lyric poetry?
0: No, I didn't.
1: Neither did I. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't just a poet. She was a musician. So her work was meant to be sung along to music and none of her music survives to this day but she's credited with inventing the style of poetry. And there's this anecdotal story of this guy who was basically humming and kind of singing one of her songs. And his uncle, who was this famous person, was like, what is that song? And he you know, sang it for his uncle. And his uncle's like, okay, I can die now. Like, I'm good. I heard that. I just want to die.
0: <laughs> I'm good. I want to toss this out there just in case someone is maybe not as aware. A lot of Grecian text stories epics that we understand as stories were originally meant to be sung or are very derivative from something that was meant to be sung so
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, for example the Iliad and the Odyssey they're very repetitive and one of the reasons that people attribute that is the fact that there are songs it's like a chorus that you repeat so mm-hmm. the fact that Sappho kind of cornered the market on this
1: <laughs> yeah. is really cool It's so, I'm, listen, I love Sappho. Okay. All right. She's also credited as the inventor of the Plectron, which is used to pick a lyre, the Pectus, which is a type of lyre, and the Mixolydian Mode, which our musician listeners will know is a major musical scale still used in jazz and blues music today. I remember in high school studying the Mixolydian Mode and no one mentioned that Sappho invented it.
0: I remember in high school having to pretend that I knew how to read music for four years so I could stay in the <laughs> yeah. top
1: choir with you guys. And, and humming along as the people around you just sight read what's going on. You're like, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was never that good. No.
0: Neither was I.
1: We were just <laughs> we having were no, a good time. We were no Sappho. <laughs> Daniel Mendelssohn writes for The New Yorker that Sappho is, quote, no ordinary poet. For the better part of three millennia, she has been the subject of furious controversies about her work, her family life, and above all, her sexuality. In antiquity, literary critics praised her sublime style, even as comic playwrights ridiculed her allegedly loose morals. Legend has it that the early church burned her works, Quote, a sex-crazed whore who sings of her own wantonness, one (laughs) theologian wrote. However, the greatest problem for Sappho studies is that there is so little Sappho to study. It would be hard to think of another poet whose status is so disproportionate to the size of her surviving body of work. End quote. (laughs) And that's the crux of it. We know about Sappho. We know about her work. We know people loved her. And we just don't have that much to go on. We have one full poem surviving and a ton of fragments, which are very beautiful little snippets. They're that kind of poetry you want to put under an Instagram post. Like they're mm-hmm. just little two-line snippets. Absolutely. But that's not, that you know, that a, a millennia-long famous poet does not make. So we're missing a lot of what made her so amazing. And that blows my mind because I already love what we have of what she's done.
0: I wonder how much of her surviving especially through this sex crazed horror quote-unquote narrative Mm -hmm. is the sexualization of a
1: poetess who loves women and writes about women we will get into that because i have a whole section digging into was she really a lesbian can we put that label on her what does it mean for what we found that she wrote All of this.
0: Girl, sexuality in ancient Greece is a whole thing.
1: (laughs) It's a whole thing. Okay, all right. It is unknown if her poems were even written down during her own time, as lyrical poetry may have been sung, memorized, and passed along orally, as so many stories were during that time. However, there are fragments of her poems on pottery and papyrus, the Library of Alexandria even cataloged nine, quote, books, papyrus scrolls of sappho's poems. too soon tracy too soon i i, I made a tiktok about the library of alexandria <laughs> and i broke a lot of hearts <laughs> okay um so the library of alexandria cataloged nine quote-unquote books of sappho's poems organized primarily by meter book one alone reportedly contained thirteen hundred and twenty lines of verse The contents of all nine volumes may have amounted to some 10,000 lines of poetry. However, by the Middle Ages, nearly all of Sappho's work had disappeared. Nearly all of the limited number of handwritten copies of her work were lost to fire, flood, neglect, and disapproving church officials.
0: Does this ever make you terrified for the fact that... Digital
1: work is not more secure. (laughs) I mean, you know, times and history is going to do what it's going to (sighs) do. I, I, yeah, it's not more secure. We might lose a lot, but people are always going to want to know what people of the past are doing, and they're always going to dig for answers. That's not (laughs) going to change.
0: Slight, non sequitur, I've built a... D&D character who i've not gotten to play enough she was a wizard and one of her big flexes is just you know i was at the library of alexandria once if we'd preserve that we wouldn't be worrying about spell slots anymore (laughs) (laughs) just whenever anything goes wrong she just is like oh that's so good you know if we hadn't burned the library of alexandria we probably wouldn't be in this pickle it's true (laughs) listen
1: a lot of knowledge is lost okay could have had so much poetry to read Sappho's poetry was probably first written down, if it was written down at all, on Lesbos, either in her own lifetime or shortly afterwards. Initially, probably in the form of a score for performers to work with, as her work was, again, sung along to music. Can't emphasize enough. We are missing a crucial part of what her poetry was, because we have no idea what that music sounded like, but it was sung to music. In the fifth century BC, Athenian book publishers most likely began to produce copies of Sappho's lyric poetry, some including explanatory material and glosses as well as the poems themselves. Sometime in the second or third century, Alexandrian scholars produced a critical edition of Sappho's poetry. There may have been more than one Alexandrian edition. John J. Winkler argues for two, one edited by Aristophanes of Byzantium and another by his pupil, Aristarchus of Samothrace. This is not certain. Ancient sources tell us that Aristarchus's edition of the book replaced the edition by Aristophanes, but are silent on whether Sappho's work, as well, went through multiple editions. So for now, we are unclear how many editions of her work were created after her death. It's all hazy. Like, that's what this all boils down to. It was so long ago, and there's so many anecdotes, and playwrights who wrote about Biggest Dickus and other people who were her contemporaries who either loved her or hated her and church people who came in and destroyed what was there as evidence. So everything is fuzzy. But we do have one of her contemporaries who wrote a little something about her. Have you heard of a a little man named Plato? Oh, that person. Hmm. That that guy? You might have heard him mentioned once or twice, so. Maybe once. (laughs) Maybe once. You know, okay, so... Mendelssohn also writes that Plato, whose attitude towards literature was, to say the least, vexed, he thought most poetry had no place in the ideal state, he is said to have been the one to coin calling Sappho the tenth muse. The scholars at the Library of Alexandria enshrined her in their canon of nine lyric geniuses, the only woman to be included. At least two towns on Lesbos vied for the distinction of being her birthplace. And Aristotle reports that she was honored, although she was a woman.
0: Plato saying that poetry had no place in the ideal state is really interesting mm-hmm. because in his lifetime, masculinity was defined through this lens of men proving that they are valuable to the city state Mm -hmm. so intelligence was very highly valued so was the ability to fight in a war and it's intriguing to me that he is saying that poetry had no place because poetry was such a very large part of proving that you were an intellectual I think philosophy was and, and being able to argue was, but... That's a good point. And I see it as poetry because it's
1: written in verse so right. often by the time it gets to me. Right. Right. And I think poetry was frivolous in his mind.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's...
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. We can do a whole other episode on Plato. <laughs> it's a whole thing. I don't know that I'm ready for that. <laughs> no. God, no. No. For now, we're sticking with Sappho. So what really excited me about Sappho was the idea of what made her so famous. Why was she so groundbreaking? Why 3,000 years later are we still talking about her? Like, What made it so great? The big thing that she contributed was that she created a new meter for poetry, now known as Sapphic Meter, or the Sapphic Stanza. It consists of three lines of 11 beats and a concluding line of five. So there are four lines in each stanza. First three have 11 beats. The last one has five. There's actually a particular rhythm you're supposed to speak it at, but for the life of me, I could not get that down. It was really tough.
0: I was going to ask you, is a beat what we think of as a syllable?
1: Yes, it's what we think of as a syllable, but the way you pronounce it is it's like a stressed, unstressed, stressed, stressed, unstressed. Like it's a very particular rhythm you're supposed to do. Think of, uh, for those who know Shakespeare's sonnets, iambic pentameter is what we speak in. Mm -hmm. Typically, that's a very easy way for us to do spoken poetry. And the sapphic meter, I listened to people doing it. I tried to do it myself. I could not get it. And it's one of those things where I couldn't sit there and show you a chart. Right, <laughs> like here, look at what the Sapphic stanza is stressed, unstressed, all of that. So that was really interesting for me to see. Again, because I just love poetry; I think it's really cool. The other thing was her poems do not rhyme, even in her Aeolic Greek dialect. They don't rhyme, and the difference is, oh, Ron, I'm I'm all over the place because I'm so excited. You can take the same Aeolian Greek fragment that she wrote, and get hundreds. Of different translations the way people interpret her lines i looked at this one poem that i'll read to you in a little bit i found four different english translations of it as i was researching just casually someone was like hey here's my translation of it someone else is like this is a scholar's translation of it there's all these different ways because trying to capture the feeling of what she's doing is different than trying to capture the rhythm. So when you read her poems in English, you don't actually really see sapphic meter very often.
0: Translations keep me up at night. Mm-hmm. They do, because it's just another filter that you're having the work pass through, which is not inherently bad. Thank God people are translating. Right. Just choosing a translation, it really...
1: Yeah. Especially for this podcast. <laughs> yes. The, oh, it's, it was cool. One of the pages I looked at actually had the, um, Aeolian Greek poem next to the translation. So I was able to figure out that when they talked about the beats, they were talking about syllables because when I read out those words, it matched the three lines of 11 beats with the concluding line of five. But when you looked at the English one on the other side that they translated, it, sapphic stanza was thrown out the window. It was just getting the feeling across because what she was known for was how raw her feelings were in her poems Hmm. one example of sapphic stanza is her best known verse known to classicists as fragment 31 which consists of four sapphic stanzas these were singled out by the author of a first century ad literary treatise called on the sublime for the way that they quote select and juxtapose the most striking, intense symptoms of erotic passion, end quote. In this poem, the speaker expresses her envy of the men who, presumably in the course of certain kinds of social situations, have access to and a chance to talk to the woman that the speaker yearns for. Mm. So you ready to hear this fragment 31 poem in which the speaker yearns for a woman that another person gets to talk to absolutely all right he seems to me to be the equal to the gods whoever sits opposite to you and listens to you talking sweetly and laughing desirably which makes the heart in my breast fly for whenever i look upon you for an instant i can no longer find a single word but my tongue is broken and instantly Delicate fire runs beneath my skin, and I see nothing with my eyes. My heart pounds. A cold sweat covers me, trembling, grabs my all. I am paler than grass, and I think I am little short of dying. But everything can be endured.
0: As a writer, so we write every week. hmm From perspectives that are often very different from our own.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Does it make you inclined to think that she was writing from the perspective
1: of a man? Rowan, I'm so glad you asked that question. Really? (laughs) Yes. Yes. Hold that thought. We will get to it in a second. I'm going to analyze this poem first. Without that in my – put a pin in that. We will get there. Okay. The poem itself I found really incredible because – to me, while reading it, I noticed that it avoided describing the woman at all. It, it leaves it to the reader or listener to imagine the subject of the speaker's affection.
0: You're imagining the the love interest by understanding the lover. Yes, actually, by understanding the way the
1: person writing the poem perceives the lover. Hmm. <sighs> and it makes it it makes the poem go from an external to an internal point of view by the time you're done. Sappho begins the poem describing how wonderful the woman is, but quickly shifts to an internal description of suffering and longing and the physical effects it has on her. There are some versions of this poem I saw translated, which I think was a little bit of a creative liberty on the translator's part, so I didn't keep it, where the first line and one of the last lines are the same, where it's it was like, it seems to me that he's equal to the gods, blah, blah, blah. And then it ends with, it seems to me I am short of dying. So they kept that r- rhythm. Mm-hmm. Really cool. I couldn't find anywhere else that did it, so I didn't choose that translation. Regardless, the simplicity of this work and its ability to focus on the internal feelings related to love make it a poem that 3,000 years later people can still connect with.
0: It's wonderful because it embodies the sort of standalone feeling of longing. Mm Mm-hmm longing is its own satisfaction in a lot of ways, especially, well, at least in writing, I think. People sometimes try to call longing love and they're not the same.
1: No, no, they're really different feelings.
0: And the way that she describes this, it is so clear that the the writer, let's say, is longing for that love interest, but also there's this longing to just be... There's this almost ro- there's this romanticization of also the the person who gets to interact with the lover. There's a longing mm-hmm. for the lover and a longing for this this third figure. Gosh, I wish I was more articulate because we did <laughs> just hear a poem from Sappho, but it's so savory. Yes. It's like a whole meal.
1: Yes. And that's why people really connected with her work. It was really raw and work like that raw emotional work about love not jiving with the church and it was in the (laughs) renaissance around 1550 that we see legends appear about her work being destroyed jerome Cardin wrote that gregory nazianzen had sappho's work publicly destroyed and at the end of the 16th century joseph Justus scaliger claimed that sappho's work was burned in rome and constantinople on the orders of pope gregory the seventh Back in the year 1073, so.
0: That feels like a you're only allowed to long for Jesus moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. And and again, so take note. Someone in the 1500s wrote that someone in the 11th century destroyed her work. So it's a little bit removed, but all in all, in middle ages, people were like, yo, she really talking about loving on people? And we don't think that's great. So... Could you just pay
0: us taxes to get into heaven, actually? Thanks. Yeah. Can you – do you mind, actually, a coin, please?
1: Thank you. (laughs) So (laughs) the truth is that while people did disapprove of her work in the church, more likely we lost most of her work just due to a decrease in demand for it. It was copied less and less frequently, one reason being that her dialect of Aeolic Greek was seen as more provincial than the popular Attic Greek, which was seen as classical. This made her work increasingly difficult to understand the further we got away from her lifetime. Now, on to that big question. Was Sappho really gay? (sighs) Get ready. I'm going to go off. I don't have – I'm going to start now. I don't have a definitive answer, but I do have a lot of thoughts. (laughs) If you had a definitive answer, you would not be the Tracy Harrison that we know and love. (laughs) It's not on me. My Basically, my thesis statement for this is that it's not on us to decide and that our cultural context for what was happening back then is completely different. And we're trying to put a modern lens onto something that it doesn't fit onto.
0: I have thoughts, but I'm going to wait.
1: Okay. Joshua Mark writes for World History that the intimacy and depth of feeling would seem to suggest that Sappho was a lesbian, but that does not mean that she was. Homer's description of Greek warfare and the dust and blood before Troy does not mean he was a participant in the battle, only that he was a great poet. And there was no distinction between homosexual and heterosexual relationships in ancient Greece or elsewhere, as the terms are a modern-day invention. So like we talked about a while ago in the Anne Lister episode, even in the 1800s when she was alive, there wasn't the word really for homosexual. So Again, modern word we're putting on to ancient times. It's likely that Sappho addressed a wide range of topics and had no reason to exclude her character's sexual orientation any more than she would any aspect of an individual. While it is possible then that Sappho was a lesbian, it is equally possible that she wrote on many subjects but that her works expressing lesbian love are the ones that have survived most intact. These were probably her most popular as they addressed romantic love a subject as popular among audiences in ancient Greece as it is today. End quote. So Joshua Mark touches on there what you said. She was a great poet. She may have been writing from other people's perspectives, and we've lost that context, and so we just see it as her writing as herself. She probably wrote about all sorts of things, but people were most intrigued by the idea of her writing as a woman in love with other women. Counter to this, I do want to say, yes, the word lesbian and sapphic do come from her. So whether or not she really did have love affairs with women and was known very strongly for her love of women is irrelevant to the fact that the legend around that does give us the modern day words we use. They're separate in my mind. The truth of her life and the words they impacted.
0: The obsession with the label for Sappho and and many figures from the past comes from the fact that these definitions were denied to a lot of modern people and also that defining sexuality or gender, et cetera, et cetera, is a tool of the society we currently exist in mm-hmm. to either Include or exclude. We, we are kind of reckoning with that in a very large way in 2022. I am learning as this podcast goes on and I read a lot of papers from a lot of scholars that mm-hmm. the obsession with canon, the idea that something is original, the first version of something is the one true version, mm-hmm. is a very culturally Christian narrative yeah. Mythology and cultures that have a legacy of mythology do not require that the original version be the one true because the interpretations were, again, a tool for the storyteller, mm-hmm. for the listener. You know, are we, are we comforting those who need it? Are we taking down power structures? These stories can be reinterpreted without inherently harming the story. Sappho is both a historical figure and now kind of a mythological
1: figure. Yes,
0: she has exceeded humanity, mm-hmm. and we call that memeing now. I think
1: in a lot of ways. <laughs> yeah, she she went viral.
0: And knowing what we know about the history, I don't really think that it's necessary to say, "Oh, she probably wasn't gay because labels and blah blah." And fight that. There's mm-hmm. there's I think great comfort in the fact that yeah, she can be this amazing queer icon, and and the gay community can love her poetry. And hold that very dear. And then at the same time, we can go, well, you know, maybe she just didn't think about that at all. Or maybe she was trying to understand her own heterosexual romantic relationships by putting herself in the man's perspective. There's a a myriad of options Mm -hmm. from a writer's perspective.
1: Right. Right. And that's what I love about exploring this because I went in thinking, oh, there must be so much evidence that she, you know, was in an affair with this woman and this person and that she lived. And there's just not. We don't even really know if she had any romantic or sexual affairs with women we can speculate some of poems mention women's names and longing but again was that from her point of view or was she writing as the point of view of the man she knew would be singing this we don't know and we can't know
0: that's a good point men were sort of often the bards of the ancient right. greeks if they're gonna sing it why not write it for them right that's really very succinct and obvious point that i had passed over <laughs>
1: That's that's teamwork, man. I do have a good anecdote that I want to share about the word lesbian, because originally it meant one from lesbos, the island. It did change to mean a woman who prefers women as early as 580 to 485 BCE. There's a Greek poet named Anacreon who described lesbians in sort of the modern sense when he wrote, not that girl. She's the other kind, one from lesbos disdainfully nose turned up at my silver hair she makes eyes at the ladies (laughs) get wrecked (laughs) right (laughs) (laughs) she didn't like my silver hair so obviously she only likes women (laughs) plato through his dialogue the phaedrus praises sappho and anacreon as authorities on love scholar E. E. Pender notes, the reason why Plato pays tribute to Sappho and Anacreon is that they have captured and expressed so vividly the shock of love, end quote, that Sappho herself and not a persona is expressing romantic feelings for a woman is supported by later writers who reference Lesbos as Anacreon does after Sappho's fame was established. So kind of rooting in, yeah, there's probably a connection there because ultimately again we can say we don't know we don't know we don't know the word sapphic and lesbian come from this one woman so i'm not thinking she was aggressively straight right there's there's a queerness there for sure
0: well and there's also okay let's say lesbos was just chock-a-block full of lesbians right sappho Mm -hmm didn't have to be a lesbian to write for her audience. Like, there's no queerbaiting yeah. stigma on this. That's true.
1: <laughs> Sappho was known to have a close circle of female companions around her. According to a Biography Online, a philosopher named Maximus of Tyre wrote that the friendships of Sappho were similar to those of Socrates, suggesting Sappho had a circle of like-minded friends brought together by a love of art, poetry, and culture. It has been suggested with little authority that Sappho may have been the head of some formal academy, like a school. However, it was more likely to be a less formal circle of friends. End quote. Which I wanted to include because so many places you would see, Sappho ran a school. Sappho taught people. Sappho ran a school. She did this. Or Sappho had a, a close circle of female friends and it was very romantic and it was really all of her lovers. Like, you see both extremes. <laughs> and this quote, I think, is just like, well... Mm, Based on the way the men operated at the time as famous poets, here's what they did. She probably mimicked that and just had people who loved art with her, hanging out.
0: It's just her canasta club. Got together every Sunday, had some drinks, played some cards.
1: Listen, if you lived at a time period where you could just sit with your friends and talk about art and poetry, uh, we would all do it. We would do it. It is
0: my only aspiration in life.
1: (laughs) i know i'm with you we, we started a whole podcast about
0: it <laughs> i do not want a girl boss anymore i just want to sit around on an island talking about art and poetry
1: yes <laughs> in classical athenian comedy which were plays from around the 5th century to the 4th century ending with menander the poet i mentioned earlier sappho was actually characterized as a promiscuous heterosexual woman It's not until the Hellenistic period that we explicitly see her discussed as a homosexual woman. Okay, the earliest of these is a fragmentary biography written on Papyrus in the late 3rd or or early 2nd century BC, which states that Sappho was accused by some of being irregular in her ways and a woman lover. These ancient authors do not appear to have believed that Sappho did, in fact, have sexual relationships with other women listen
0: this sounds this sounds like an exact copy paste of the dialogue that it happens around bisexual women today
1: yes (laughs) yes people it's so it just blew my mind because i really genuinely thought going into this that there was going to be so much evidence of of just just and lister levels of <laughs> diary entries of explicit details of stories of famous famous lovers and it's like in her own time people made fun of her but they made fun of her for being hypersexualized but also that was a, a caricature was that even true and it wasn't until later that it was described as her even being interested in women it wasn't until well after her death that she was Closely associated with sexual love of women So then the argument of, well, the word Sappho and lesbian, sapphic Come from her Was that a Snowball effect of these Legends being told after her death Growing and growing and growing
0: I would say absolutely
1: Her contemporaries seemed to rarely Describe her work in relation to homosexuality at all And instead focused on Praising the cleverness and straightforward Approach of her work I don't think I've breathed in five minutes. What I'm saying is that there's not that much evidence that she identified as a homosexual woman.
0: Okay, we're not in an ancient Greece. We have no way of knowing, though certainly the scholars work very hard to know. If it is not noteworthy to be in a sexual or romantic relationship of someone with someone of the same sex, then it is not noteworthy. Right. That would be, like, me making a huge deal out of the fact that you're a brunette. It's not very important that you're a brunette because it's not scandalous. You just are.
1: Like... Right. Yeah. And was that the case? Right. Like, that's the big question. Was that the case and it was just, this is what it is? Yes, she writes these love poems. She transcribes and describes the idea of love and suffering beautifully regardless of anything else. Or like was it was just yeah i don't i don't know because we don't know if she had a husband her husband's jokingly named biggest Dickest. like it, you just can't know there is no answer here and i think it's we're trying so hard to find an answer when the answers allowed to just be vague
0: well it's so important because there's this huge void of queer representation that people are trying to fill with anything Mm -hmm. they possibly can. And Savo's actually an easy person to toss into that void and be like, look, we have representation. People have done much more with less. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) All the time, folks make decisions about uh, character in any form of media being queer-coded just because fashion or a line Mm -hmm. that they said... Sappho is actually the perfect
1: person to claim – it's so frustrating. It gets complicated because I really liked what um, Marguerite Johnson wrote about kind of the way that she became synonymous with lesbianism. And that's that the idea of her connection to homosexuality began with the Greeks and the Romans of later centuries after her death. Get ready for this who tended to interpret her skill as stemming from a perverted form of masculinity, which sometimes found expression in representations of her through the lens of hypersexuality. Sappho's reputation for sexual proclivity initially linked her to passionate relations with men, which later morphed into a stronger association with women. So, okay, a possibility of why we think of Sappho as a homosexual woman today. I'm not saying this is the case, I'm just saying it is a theory out there. Later, Greeks and Romans said, in order to be as good as she was, she must have basically been a man. And to basically be a man, you need to love women. Like, it, it. you can see the connecting lines of, if it's hyper-masculinity, and she's hypersexual, and she's writing all these things and doing all these things, well, then she just must be a man like us and also like women.
0: Yeah, that's a super familiar
1: version of the world. hmm So, clearly her sexuality is still debated. Uh, André Lardinois, who's a scholar, described it as the great Sappho question. Early translators of her poetry sometimes heterosexualized it while translating it, which adds to the confusion. Towards the end of the 20th century, though, some scholars began to reject the question of whether or not Sappho was a lesbian. Glenn Most wrote that Sappho herself, quote, would have no idea what people mean when they call her nowadays a homosexual. André Lardinois stated that it is nonsensical to ask whether Sappho was a lesbian. And Paige Dubois calls the question a particularly obfuscating debate. Okay. I agree with that last part. Basically, thesis of my entire episode. It doesn't matter. It's ruining the part that she's an awesome poet. It ultimately comes down to how you want to define the word lesbian. If it's love of women and focused on the needs of women and it's non-sexual, sure, fine. We can call it lesbian. If, If not, stop talking about it is really where I'm at. Stop focusing on it. Stop wasting time trying to get an answer. The feminine urge
0: to move to lesbos just so you can say i'm a lesbian for reasons that have nothing to do with sexuality and confuse everyone.
1: <laughs> <laughs> love that. <laughs> I will end my rant here.
0: No, you're not ranting, girl. You're you're killing it.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so, Mark Joshua writes that the best one can say is that Sappho was most likely gay and became famous for articulating the experience of love that anyone Of whatever sexual orientation had felt. Moving from that, I want to talk a little bit about translating her work from Aeolic Greek to mm, English, whatever language you want. Rowan looks stressed, I'm stressed as well. This (laughs) whole translating thing gets me. Okay, I have said it a few times now, but I really want to hammer in that the dialect that Sappho wrote in was Aeolic Greek, a different dialect of Greek than we think of today, which is Attic Greek. This means that it's really difficult to translate Sappho's poetry. Not only is it in poor condition when we find it, it's fragments, it's on papyrus sometimes, it's on pottery. It's this dialect that most people today don't even really know. So Marguerite Johnson says that when the translator finds Sappho's poetry, They're immediately drawn to emendations, conjectures, broken lines, missing words, incomplete words, hypothetical punctuation, and in short, a philological headache. (laughs) And after persisting, the translator is always dissatisfied. It is impossible to capture the poet's genius in another language, especially if the translator is simultaneously striving for a metrical equivalent. The Roman poet Catullus was also a poetic genius, an artist with complete control over style, metrics, and meaning. Yet he was humble enough not to replicate Sappho's words, but to imitate them, to compose a response to them, to make them his own as homage to the 10th muse. That's very cool. Mm Mm-hmm.
0: I know this wonderful couple, and they are both translators, and one is an expert in translating German to English and back and forth, and the Mm -hmm. other is an expert in translating French to English and back and forth, though they both know so many languages. Yeah. And one of the things that they are always expressing to me and then talking about with each other, because they have a Germanic language and a Romance language. Right. Is – when translating, trying to capture the history that any given word has within a society.
1: Oh, that's so true. Because
0: it's not always a one-to-one. And then as a translator, how how long can you take to express what a word means in one culture into another?
1: hmm Knowing that rocked my boat. On top of it, with this, you're either going to get the words and their meaning perfect, or the meter and the flow of the poetry, but not both. Unless you sacrifice some quality with how you do both.
0: <sighs> I'm dissatisfied. Yes, <laughs>
1: as, as many are with how this works. But fortunately for us, and probably headache-inducing for scholars we're continuing to discover more and more texts written by Sappho. In 2004, the discovery of, of a piece of papyrus that completed an existing fragment, thereby making a new poem by Sappho, received international media coverage. The process of repair resulted in poem 58, which deals with the theme of youth and old age. In this poem, Sappho discusses the myth of Tithonus, the story in which a goddess asks Zeus to grant her young lover eternal life. However, the goddess Eos neglects to ask for eternal youth and is repelled by her lover's now old age. She abandons him and he's trapped in the cycle of endless aging, but never dying. Do you just eventually turn into conscious dust? I would have to imagine. Right? Like, you just keep going and going and going, like, ooh. Dust. You would, be, you would be dust. The mitochondria is the
0: powerhouse of the cell, and you're still conscious and doing your thing.
1: <laughs> you just are mitochondria, just one mitochondria for <laughs> the whole human brain. The more work we find by Sappho, the more that we learn. She wrote poems about more than just love, but about every facet of her life that she was experiencing. And that I find so interesting and want. To, I want so badly to see more of. Yeah, you just want to consume it. So I attempted something crazy this week. Uh Uh-huh. For my story, I thought, Uh Uh-huh. I can't just do a narrative story from Sappho's perspective. Uh (laughs) (laughs) Uh-huh. So I wrote a poem in Sapphic stanza. Ah,
0: Tracy is the (laughs) 11th muse.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I had so much fun with this. Although it was incredibly hard to break my brain out of needing to rhyme, because mm. I'm so ingrained with poetry being this rhyming thing, and instead I would I, I wrote this over the course of a few days where like I would sit. Fall, I do my best singing when I'm like falling asleep, which is so unfortunate because then I have yeah. to like remember it.
0: You could do what Salvador Dali does and fall asleep holding a spoon over mm-hmm. like a plate or a glass, and then when it falls, mm-hmm. you wake up and you're like, ah, oh, my genius.
1: Let me write it. i like sleep too much for that um you know but so i would sit and i because the again remember sapphic stanzas the first three lines are 11 beats and the last line is five so i would sit and tap on my fingers as i was writing this
0: uh, oh, so I, I'm, <laughs> yeah, I'm already. Rowan's looking ahead, <laughs> and and then on top of that, you as a human are kind of programmed to speak in iambic pentameter. That's just mm-hmm. how we
1: operate now. Yes. Oh. Oh, I will not be reading this in that sapphic beat. I can't do it. I had to pick. And no. choose. No. It, it'll be more iambic pentameter. But what's hard is that a poem like this is easier to see than it is to read in some ways because the phrases get broken up strangely and when you can see it the flow of the phrases isn't as jarring as when you end a sentence halfway through and start a new phrase on the next line
0: did you just describe podcasting i think you just
1: <laughs> i think you just described our whole job yes all right, all right Are you bring ready? it okay.
0: sappho
1: 2.0 <laughs> it would be an honor It seems to me that I am not yours to have. Alone I wait and wonder longingly as the stars chase each other across the sky while silence wraps my form. To others you give your beguiling smile so bright that I watch as the light blooms on your face. Honeyed words so sweet to hear are spoken by lips as red as rose. To hear your voice is to hear the voice of God's. My heart rattles inside my chest at your name. My palms grow clammy when I see you walk by, your scent on the wind. I envy the clothes that wrap your form so tight, even the ground upon which your feet do glide. Each laugh is the ringing of bells in my ear, high and sweet and light. But it is in the quiet late night hours when alone I sit upon the sand and think of all the worlds in which I can hold your hand and feel your soft skin. I look upon you with your wide bright eyes and see an eternity reflected in them. Why do others worship the moon when you are so nearby on earth? I see the wind brush the hair along your face, a gentle caress upon your perfect skin. I feel a fluttering inside my chest that I cannot control. The image is so vivid in my mind that I am transported to a new time and place, one in which you look at me as though I am a goddess myself. But when the dawn breaks across the horizon and the sun stretches her arms to touch your cheek, I am reminded that loneliness is home. Solitude returns. You were never mine to have and call my own. I never meant to give my heart away, so freely and with so little effort and yet it was always yours
0: tracy (laughs) you are so uh, you're so amazing okay it this is why having poetry written about you is so incredibly valuable like look at that you wrote a whole poem in sapphic ver yeah
1: it was fun it was really fun trying to, like, fit a flow together and start it out with loneliness and ending it with loneliness. But with that swell of hope in the middle and the feeling of the... F- I really clearly was inspired by the, 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 the fragment where she was writing from the point of view of someone who was longing for someone they couldn't have.
0: Okay, can I geek out about spoken poetry for a second? Yes, please. Okay, so Shakespeare. A lot of folks' only interaction with spoken poetry in a really intense, like down to the syllable, down to the punctuation way, comes from Shakespeare. Mm -hmm. I went to acting school. I studied so much Shakespeare. And there are a lot of schools of thought about how Shakespeare should be performed because in Shakespeare you encounter the same breaking up of lines. Mm -hmm. And one school of thought is you just totally ignore the punctuation in the line you just connect the thought and speak and there's another school of thought that says the breaking up of the line matters and you need to use it to inform your acting or your reading so (laughs) your second verse is such a cool example of this You, you it's such a cool use of sapphic verse okay so if you're reading this i'm not going to read it as well as you but if you're reading this from an acting school perspective i love this please go on i'm so excited (laughs) about this oh my god (laughs) when you read the second verse i okay i'm (laughs) i'm so excited i love reading poetry okay so the second verse if you're going through it saying screw punctuation Mm -hmm. i don't care about the line i'm just gonna read on the thought you say to others, you give your beguiling smiles so bright that I watch as the light blooms on your face. Honeyed words so sweet to hear are spoken by lips as red as rose. Cool. We mm-hmm. have a thought. It's mm-hmm. the, the listener has no clue what that looked like on paper. Right. The other school of thought. To others, you give your beguiling smile so... <laughs> bright that i watch as the light blooms on your face honeyed words so sweet to hear are spoken by lips as red as rose so the fact that you have these (laughs) fragments on the end of the lines you have so and then you have this break and that that's telling you something Mm -hmm. about why the speaker couldn't get there and then (sighs) oh tracy your poem is so cool because if you read it using the syllables that you worked so hard on, mm-hmm. you have a lover that is more contemplative and more trapped mm-hmm. by their language. And I love it.
1: I <laughs> want to like reread this with that in mind because I, I did work so hard in the the phrasing of it and the the syllables to make it all make sense. And to have it read in that second way that you did is, like, perfection. Do you want
0: me to do a cold read? Yes, please. Okay, okay. So this is – I'm so obsessed with this. So Tracy's the poet, right? Tracy is the Sappho writing a poem trying to inform the person who's going to perform it. Mm -hmm. Am I going to sing it? No, we don't have the music. But I am the person who receives it
1: not having communicated with the poet. This is so cool. (laughs) so i'm so excited it's so cool to have someone (laughs) interpret what you wrote because i sat and worked on this for so long so to get to see you read it out i'm so overjoyed about
0: before i I go on i think it's so important to acknowledge that like my interpretation is not more right or inherently at odds with the way you wrote it or read it it is informed by a legacy of training with the goal of communicating in a very specific way. hmm And, like, is that not the most beautiful part of the human language? Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> it seems to me that I am not yours to have. Alone, I wait and wonder longingly as the stars chase each other across the sky while silence wraps my form. To others you give your beguiling smile so bright that I watch as the light blooms across your face. Honeyed words so sweet to hear are spoken by lips as red as rose. To hear your voice is to hear the voice of God's my heart rattles inside my chest at your name my palms grow clammy when i see you walk by your scent on the wind i envy the clothes that wrap your form so tight even the ground upon which your feet do glide each laugh is the ringing of bells in my ear high and sweet and light But it is in the quiet late-night hours, when alone I sit upon the sand and think of all the worlds in which I can hold your hand and feel your soft skin. I look upon you with your wide, bright eyes and see eternity reflected in them. Why do others worship the moon when you are so nearby on earth. I see the wind brush the hair along your face, a gentle caress upon your perfect skin. I feel a fluttering inside my chest that I cannot control. The image is so vivid in my mind that I am transported to a new time and place one in which you look at me as though I am a goddess myself. But when the dawn breaks across the horizon and the sun stretches her arms to touch your cheek, I am reminded that loneliness is home. Solitude returns. You were never mine to have and call my own, I never meant to give my heart away so freely and with so little effort. And yet,
1: it was always yours. That was exactly how it sounded in my head. <laughs> See, but it's perfection.
0: You, you were able to completely inform the person who was going to speak it using the tool of sapphic verse. That is so cool
1: listen we talk about it all the time the more we do this podcast the more i'm just realizing how deeply i love poetry and like didn't even know
0: i just i don't, I don't know anything about sapphic verse i know that you just explained it to me but mm-hmm. as a performer and a reader mm-hmm. that doesn't that doesn't really like hit me in a visceral way and then mm-hmm. you were just like here you go have a sapphic poem
1: I wrote yes. it. Yes, because you don't find them, at least for Sappho. I mean, people write in sapphic stanza. That's a, a style of writing. But you, when you're reading Sappho's work, you're not getting that sapphic stanza feeling. So I wanted to create an original poem that had that yearning and honesty and love of what Sappho writes about with the sapphic verse to mimic even a fraction of what she might have sounded like.
0: I think you did such a spectacular job, especially because you embodied that, like, sweet bitterness of longing mm-hmm. and this desire for the speaker to define oneself by the way that the person they adore interacts with them. hmm I cannot gush enough.
1: Hey, thank you. <laughs> thank you for perceiving me and also stop perceiving me so I can process this.
0: Oh, God. Where did Tracy go? I'm now alone on this podcast. So,
1: wow. So that is that is Sappho, the the poetess, this enigmatic figure that we have put so much on from a modern perspective, I would say even losing a little bit about what made her great in her time. The first thing you think of when you think of Sappho probably isn't poet and her poetry
0: no i guess not no i didn't even mention it when you asked me that's true you mentioned biggest dickus well
1: (laughs) (laughs) how can you not you know
0: (laughs) you did such a fantastic job i know that you have wanted to cover sappho for an incredibly long time and you writing that that poem at the end just mm.
1: that was my favorite part by far. I loved working on that poem.
0: Not everyone can say that. Imagine all of the poetry units in our high school uh, education and all the people who groaned.
1: Everyone hated it and it was always my favorite. Yes. You and I loved poetry the whole way through.
0: Oh, I was 100% in internet poetry blogging
1: oh we both were (laughs) we both were and it's shameful but now that i'm older i don't care and i'm proud of it
0: yes no shame now
1: look at the problem is that they're all lost i don't i would i would happily share them with people now i'd be like look at what 13 year old me wrote but i don't i don't know where it is you don't even know where it is anymore Mm, i'm not
0: prepared to look for my own but look at us now we're podcasters you just wrote in sapphic verse. yeah hey tracy Mm -hmm. tell
1: me something good All right. So for my first something good of season three, I tried to think what happened over the break while we were away? What are all the good things I can cram in? And really, it boiled down to one, a big one was just getting to chat with everyone on our discord. Mm -hmm. I got some cool book recommendations. We got to see some funny memes. We got to talk about pets and D&D and all the stuff that we love talking about. So just getting to stay connected with our listeners was lovely. And then the painting jamie did of us oh so my sister did a painting of ron and i from a behind the scenes picture from our photo shoot with chris who's also known as an fire everywhere online the beautiful painting she did that the one she gave me um is printed on a canvas because it's actually a digital painting but she's adding physical paint to it and i love that it makes it really unique and then someone did fan art of us is my other good thing Jamie sent a
0: print on canvas to me mm-hmm. as well and I I just think of it as that like queen portrait you see in the movies yes. that's supposed to be intimidating and I am I don't know where to put it because I love it so much so it's been migrating around the house uh, as a trial for different locations it's oh, it so cool and the fan art thing boggles my absolute oh. brain
1: it was uh, Ellen Enchanted. So Ellen E-L-Y-N-N underscore Enchanted did watercolor pictures, one of you and one of me. And that was also from behind the scenes pictures yes. with our photo shoot.
0: She gave us oh, big old elf just, ears, which was gave so us cool. elf ears.
1: She made us into elves. Just the idea, I don't know, if someone I'm someone who the things that I really love, I love to translate into art and I use them as inspiration. Is why there's so much art of Thea and Rosalind from a Wizard and Rogue series, because mm-hmm. I love to kind of explore their characters. And so to know that we inspired that in someone else and they got excited about art, and she even mentioned in, in the post about getting rid of kind of art block through this painting. It just has this extra special yumminess to me.
0: Absolutely. that. The best part for me about cultivating a community of artists and people who are willing to engage with you in that way is that constant back and forth of, you know, you inspire me, I inspire you. And just the building and building and building that comes from that, I think the absolute highest form of praise as a creator is having someone say, you inspired me to now create and I think that folks, myself included, get so wrapped up in the quote-unquote quality of their work. And by that, I mean how others will perceive their skill. Right. And my goal in working on this podcast is to just always say out in the world is better than fear that you
1: will be judged for for your practice or right it's better to have out in the world than just in your head especially when you're passionate about it i think this podcast has really taught both of us that good is good enough and getting something you're proud of out there whether it's perfect or not is irrelevant where i'm really proud every week of the work we put into this podcast is it perfect absolutely not but then that becomes part of the conversation it becomes a learning opportunity Mm -hmm. i I do the same thing with my art Is, is my art great Sometimes yes, sometimes no. I am self-taught. My sister went to art school. I did not. Some of the most exciting things for me to do were to sit down and explore what could make my art pieces better and and to get to study artists that I love and illustrators that I love and writers that I love. I'm reading a book on writing that Orson Scott Card. Yes, I love that wrote. book. Yes, Rowan and I both got the same book. To, to hear his perspectives on writing, like, Put your stuff out there because it's the only way to learn and grow. And I, I'm such a big believer in that.
0: One of the things that I hope people realize, and this is actually part of my something good, over the break... Yeah, hey, Rowan, um, tell me something good. <laughs> Thank you. Over the break, we did a photo shoot because we wanted to... You wanted to work on compositing uh, photographs, and I am always here to mm-hmm. do photo shoots with you. And I hope that, that people who listen to our work and who engage with us in many different mediums understand that you and I have known each other and collaborated for so long Mm -hmm. that we have a very specific language and understanding of how we want to create and we have shared goals. Mm -hmm. And we benefit from the fact that you and I do not see things the same way, but we share values ...that have been kind of forged in the same fire artistically. Mm-hmm. And having that frees up our art in a very liberating way, and then having that go out into the world and have other folks show us their work that is so different mm-hmm. and yet similar really stretches my understanding of what we could do, because even the brush strokes on Ellen Enchanted's works are are not the way that I hold a brush, a paintbrush. Right. And that is so satisfying. It teaches me something. hmm And so it was really it was so fun. It was so wonderful to have that shoot. Like I loved that. I hate to say it, the synergy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> We've gotten to the point, especially with photography, where you know what I love and I know what you like. I know if you're not going to like a picture of yourself, if there's something you would want to change. Not all the time. Sometimes I don't catch that you didn't point your toe. <sighs> My bad. The, the, <laughs> the burn right there. <laughs> I didn't catch it. It was, you were holding your own body weight up, but you know, you know, there's, there's a level of trust and comfort there that you can contort your body. You can try things, you can experiment and you know that There's the trust that I will correct if something looks off or I'll tell you what I really like. And I just find such a deep joy in getting to work with you because I don't have to spend all my time thinking about how to direct you as a model because Mm. we've just done it so many times. And so I can get to focus on the creativity, what the picture is going to look like, how it's going to – like what story are we telling as opposed to how can I make sure that she looks her best and is comfortable you know, I I spend so much time working with with people when I'm photographing them if it's their first time working with me or they're not used to modeling, just getting them comfortable with the idea that they're in front of the camera. Mhm. We were just so far past that that it's a different feeling. Yeah, I'm absolutely
0: ruined for other photographers um, because I I think like everyone have I have a way that I want to be perceived. I have my own internal narrative of who I am and what I look like. And Mm -hmm. that isn't even just my physical being, just, like, what what Sappho level, like, meme I am. (laughs) 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 Yeah, yeah. And I also know how you view yourself as an artist and the kind of work that you put out. And there's just, there's just so much room in that space. I feel like, you know, some people are playing in a sandbox, and that's awesome, and we've put in Mm -hmm. years and years and years of work, and we have, like, a whole beach. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So anyway, that was really satisfying, because I live far away from you, and oftentimes we're collaborating in a very different medium, and there is very little else I love quite as much as our photo shoots, so. Me
1: too. Bam. Bam. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) And remember, stories grow with the telling. So if you like what we do, tell a friend. Mm, Or tell a foe. And we'll see you soon.
0: Okay? Thank you so much for joining us for the Willing and Fable podcast. This episode was written and produced by Tracy Harrison and Rowan Hall. That's me. Our editor is Tyler Fetzik, our music is by Taylor Ashe, and our logo is by Jamie Harrison. If you ever want to watch or read what we're reading, head over to willingandfable.com for our show notes and custom merch, or find us at Willing and Fable on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok to join the discussion. We hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast using your favorite listening source. And check out Willing and Fable on Patreon, where we have more than a few surprises for you, including custom artwork, stories, and access to our secret Discord channel. And of course, join us next time for another round of original retellings and in-depth research on the history, mystery, and mythology that makes the world so fascinating.
1: Furious controversies. Oh, my God. Red leather, yellow leather.
0: Red leather, black leather.
1: (laughs) the new. It's red leather, yellow leather.
0: Red leather, black leather. Oh, I only ever done red leather,
1: yellow leather. (laughs) Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, black leather. Red leather. It's harder. It's harder. Okay.